The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome, Patrick Homer, CEO and founder of Lucid. Welcome, Patrick. Dima, I am so thrilled to be here today. I literally cannot wait to hear what you asked me. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I think you, you said I could really ask anything I'd want to ask. Well, you've always been willing and able to challenge me. I remember like a number of dinners we've had over a couple of years when I go on a topic and you don't let me just get away with the easy answers. Right? <laughs> and so, yes, I'm willing to take the risk and be, be asked tough questions because I think tough questions are important. Not only so that I can flesh out my ideas, but that people understand that I'm not afraid of the, the challenging things out there, not just the easy things, right? I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, and I, and I think also, it, you know, these tough conversations are helpful for our industry to understand perspectives and for us to all evolve. There's always a lot of backdoor conversations and he said, she said, and hopefully, you know, these types of conversations kind of open the kimono, if you will, and all of us can kind of move together more cohesively. Shall we say in the spirit of SampleCon, openness and transparency. That's right. There you go. <laughs> All right. Let's start with this. So everybody always talks about the landscape that we operate in and competition and which camp you're in and which camp you're not in. How do you view the competitive landscape for Lucid? Well, that's a great question. I get asked this all the time. And first of all, I wasn't aware there were camps. And so if someone would tell me which camps there are, <laughs> if I'm in any of the camps or out of any of the camps. <laughs> but I remind our team all the time that what really matters is not who the competition is or isn't, because the reality is most of the time, every partner that we have both competes and partners with us in some way. Yep. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people who would want to say, oh, this uh, sample companies, your competitor, this data collection companies, your competitor. And the reality is they're all also our clients. So it's not in our, in our world, it's neither one or zero. It's always great. So we can't get away with pointing our fingers and saying, we must defeat them. They're, they're the enemy. That's just never, ever the case. But what's really important is that we focus on purpose and what we're trying to achieve. Okay. Because as long as we're very, very narrowly focused on what our mission is, what our values are, what we're trying to deliver, then whether another partner of ours has similar features or has similar products or capabilities, while those may seem competitive, that's not as important as we focusing on delighting our clients and retaining our, our focus on mission. So I really remind everyone that purpose is far more important than comparing ourselves to other people. Fair enough. And, and what is the purpose for Lucid? The purpose is very clear. We recognize that every single day there are questions being asked um, among various platforms globally. And every one of those questions, whether it's called a survey or a single question, they all need the right audiences to answer those questions. And our simple job is to connect global questions with these human answers that are in the form of surveys. 
And that second purpose we have is also to provide real impact on our communities around us. And I, I, I harp on this all the time, is it's easy for us to talk about business in the context of, of com competition and growth and, and markets and, and where we fit into everything. But every single day at Lucid, we also remind ourselves that we are in a community, we are members of families, and part of our real mission, and as important as success of business, is that we're having impact on the people around us in their daily lives. So that's our mission, is global questions, human answers, and providing real impact. That's what we do. The second point, is that more related to the company and the, the people, the employees that work in the company, or are you talking about in a larger realm in terms of the lives that you impact? It's really about the lives that we impact. We was really lucky that we started this company in 2010 in New Orleans because there was a direct and immediate obvious contribution that the company and its success was delivering back to the community. And it was okay. visceral and it was yep. passion. And we knew, it was also simple. We knew that just by going to work every day and creating the economic viability and more jobs, right. we were profoundly impacting the people around us. And that still continues to its day. But as we become a global organization, we start realizing that, well, there are other communities that are not just geographic, because we have offices on, on five continents now, but also the communities that we represent, whether that is LGBTQ or other types of communities that are not about location, but about other types of identity. How are we intentionally impacting those communities by the work that we do in and out of the company. That's fantastic to hear. How does that manifest itself in culture? Like what, what, is, what do you do differently, or maybe not even differently, but how do you manifest that into the culture? At first it was organic, and then it became really intentional. You know, two years ago in 2016, there was major flooding in uh, just outside of Baton Rouge. And if you weren't really in Louisiana, you may have really noticed that it, that it occurred. But when that flooding happened, it was so, normal and just this reaction and everyone just wanted to go and help right because Baton Rouge had come to help us we wanted to go to help Baton Rouge mm -hmm. and everyone said I want to go and we just said we'll go go do your thing right we we want to be a part of that uh, rescue operation that rebuild operation go do it and then we came up to this challenge of well are these vacation days are these sick what are we right. what's, what's going on yes. these work days right <laughs> and so we instituted a concept of a paid service day where on top of vacation, on top of all the normal days you would get, there's a full day paid where you go either half day or full day and go support the organization or the community or the thing that you need to do and go, as, go by yourself or go as groups and go form and go do the, that work. That's and fantastic. That's been, that's been a way for us to make it real. Right? Mm -hmm. where, uh, you're expected to go do your, your service day. We're not going to tell you what to do. but And what's funny is that if I look out on the office today, I know about 15 or 20 people are out in the community today doing their service day. That's great. It's nice to uh, actually translate the culture into a specific action and implement it. Yeah, and it's hard, right? Because yep. it, it's easy for the company to get very focused on success of business, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's yes. normal because you have, you have revenue, you have investors, mm -hmm. you have clients, you have projects, you have partners, you have all these things that are dragging you back into getting the thing done successful for the business. And it's easy, as we all know, working in companies, it's easy to start living your whole life in the company and not right. help and to right. forget that you're, you're impacting more than just that project or that client. Um, 
And the more we can bring people back to earth and get them out of the headspace of just success of company, I think the better. The challenge for us is to translate that globally. It's been straightforward, easy, and part of the culture in Louisiana. Now, how do we do that in New York and London and Sydney and Brazil and, and uh, New Delhi, right? How do we yep. translate that? How do we globalize that one, right? Yeah, and, and I, I would imagine each office or each geography has kind of a core culture, plus also the yes. culture of that country is impacted, yes. kind of blended in as well. That's absolutely the case. So how do you translate this idea of community and impact to other cultures and other countries that view it differently? Yes. Um, and that, that's, that's a part of becoming a global organization. Do you have somebody who focuses specifically on culture? I would say that starts with, with me and the yep. rest of the executive team focusing on culture. And then I think a lot of work is done by, you know, Nicole Patel, who runs our people team, right? Okay. Culture, she works on people and places. That's kind of her, her mm -hmm. function set. And as you know, where you work drives a lot of culture as well. Yes. So where are we working? How do we work? What yep. does it mean to go to work? It's a luxury on some level that you can work on culture as a larger organization because it's so hard to make that a priority early in the life cycle of a business. Totally agree. Um, but how many times have we heard from, you know, technology leaders that, uh, yeah, culture really, really matters. And right. I, I, I couldn't say that enough. That's why, you know, you start talking about the competitive landscape and I start talking about impact <laughs> on community, right? <laughs> and it's Somebody else says, great, Seema, you didn't ask any hard questions. <laughs> We're the hard ones, Seema. <laughs> All right, here's a hard one. There is a hypothesis that programmatic sample buying has really hurt the sample industry in a negative way. Kind of impact from the perspective of hurting the respondent experience. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, uh, I'd repeat the question. So there's a there's a feeling that programmatic which I believe means automation and marketplaces that make it easier and faster and more technology driven to driven. deliver sample. Correct. Is hurting the sample industry because of lowering of respondent experience. Correct. Oh, I look at it a number of ways. One is in order to see if it's hurting one factor or another, you gotta track it. Right? right. And I would say at Lucid, we've started over the past two quarters to track respond experience. And honestly, I think the leader in the space, as far as I can tell, is P2 Sample. Who okay. Tracks like a CSAT score on every single survey. Survey. Yeah. And I know a lot of other partners are doing the same thing, but I think P2's got a real, a real head start mm -hmm. there. We started on the supplier quality, not the like survey or respondent quality. So we're, we're playing a game of, uh, following up on the buy side versus the supply side. I think respondent experience lives in the responsibility set of the, like of the survey. Okay. But also we have to be able to tell um, suppliers, is the respondent experience any good for a survey or a buyer, right? Because they're mm -hmm. trying to obviously improve respondent experiences short-term and long-term. One of the areas where I see respondent experience improving is that suppliers are measuring it in real time and then using it as a calculation on whether or not they want to deliver to a particular survey. Interesting. So what we see happening is a survey will launch in the Lucid marketplace. And even if it is a high payout survey, right. even if it is a short LOI, if the CSAT scores start coming back negative, then supply will start pulling back on volume. Okay. 
because most suppliers have a long-term and short-term kind of balancing calculation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a desire for short-term delivery because revenue matters today. But we're also looking at the, the lifetime value of a respondent. And the highest correlating factor to uh, decreasing uh, lifetime value is not being able to complete a survey, which is the worst experience. Right. And so there's a high correlation between conversion and respondent experience. Fair enough. And is Lucid policing that? Are you not policing? I shouldn't say that, but monitoring that, or are you really relying yeah. on the suppliers to do that? We used to rely 100% on suppliers to monitor the the quality of demand inventory. Okay. And since uh, I think May or June, we started spinning up our content management team, which goes through basically all flag surveys, all new buyer surveys, and is really looking at the quality of the survey, inclusive, of course, respondent experience, to make sure that new inventory coming onto the platform is of the right quality. Okay. Right. Yep. I think we've got a long way to go in building out the capabilities of that team. Okay. In early days. We made a mistake. I made a mistake early on in the development of our marketplace, believing that quality, whether supply or demand quality, was the responsibility of the market participants, not of the marketplace. That was a mistake. Okay. We've been, you know, we have our huge supplier quality program, mm -hmm. and now we're building out the the demand side quality aspects because uh, trust in the marketplace is based upon every supplier understanding there's a baseline of quality of demand and vice versa, and mm -hmm. we have to build all those tools and instrumentation to make that work. Yeah, I guess the analogy would be Amazon wants to carry quality products, right? They don't want poor quality products on their site. That's right. And it's a constant battle. I mean, take these AirPods. Are they, that's what yeah. I'm wearing. These yes, things. that's what you're wearing. <laughs> you can go on to Amazon. And my wife did this. She went on to Amazon and bought like a $20 pair, which were not the pair, but they looked exactly like them. Right. The language on the, you know, the, the product seemed right. And then it just obviously was not right. And so you have on, on all marketplaces, you have this cat and mouse game between buyers and sellers. And it's a, it's part of the investment and value of a marketplace to always be tackling that mm -hmm. at, the, at the highest level. And so a lot of our investments, both in technology and people and process have been around, you could call it policing, but it's really about managing security, fraud, and quality control across the market. And it takes a lot of work and we're never going to be done, right? Right. So it's always evolving. Yeah. So the marketplace thrives on surveys, right? It needs, it needs the inventory. It needs the people to take surveys. We continue to talk about other types of data coming, you know, taking more prominence, maybe not prominence, but gaining more momentum in terms of driving insights. How does that fit into the Lucid business model? And when you talk about other data models uh, gaining traction, which ones in particular? It could be passive data collection. It could be appended data. It could be even projectable or predictable data, right, from existing data sets. So the way we look at the world is, again, between questions and answers, mm -hmm. not whether or not the answer is already known or not known. Okay. But that there are sets of questions that people have or industries have or clients have that need to be answered. And sometimes that data already exists mm -hmm. and sometimes it does not exist. And I think it's, you know, one of the frustrations that a lot of people in the research space have is that all these demographic questions are re-asked over and yes. over again, even though we already know all the answers, right? <laughs> and not only is it a bad respondent experience, it's also really expensive, mm -hmm. right? Because we could give you all that data and you could, you could 
either decrease the LOI or mm. maintain the LOI and ask information that's actually high value versus say, what's your age? Right. right? So we look at in our, um, from a data standpoint, we run a system called the Entity Mapper, which is a very large, basically identifier tracker of all the different, whether it's an encrypted email address or a cookie or identifier from a panel company. So that every time a, a session starts within the Lucid Marketplace, we can identify all the past records. Okay. And then we can tie into that all the relevant data. And some of that data may be demographic. It could be third-party data from various DMPs that are trying to be pulled in. There's no reason why it can't be passive data, behavioral data, projectable data. At the end of the day, there are these keys, which are the identifiers of respondents, of mm -hmm. users. And then it's our job to tie those keys back to the relevant data sets. Sometimes the data set is the client's own CRM database that they're right. trying to tie back in, right? So at the end of the day, all of those are, quote, answers or variables that need to be tied back to the questions. Okay. And part of our job is to translate for the buyer does that data point already exist or is it really net new? Okay. And I think that one of, you know, people talk about um, where is the cost of researcher sample going? And I think that one of the next big evolutions in the space will be that we will stop paying premium, uh, like brand new data collection rates for data points that are already known because company like companies like ours have already connected all existing data that's appropriate. And then I'm ignoring, you know, data privacy security for the moment. Right. Right. Let's, just, <laughs> let's assume table stakes there. Um, but all of that data will be available. And then part of our job at, at Lucid is to determine, are you buying existing data to satisfy your needs or are you creating net new data? Because the net new data is the, really the most expensive you can acquire. Yeah, but there's a, isn't there a carrying cost for that other data as well, right? In terms sure. of in terms of maintaining it, accessing it. So th there is a cost Absolutely. associated with that as well. There is. I'm not saying it's free. Right. But I think it, it's the difference between a syndicated research report and a custom research Correct. Project, okay. Yes. Right? Yeah. And taking that same motif and going all the way down to a single variable attached to a single respondent. Blockchain, hot topic. How's cool. it fit into our ecosystem? What, what do you, what's your perspective there? Well, I, I'm reminded of the dot-com era, 1996 to 1999. Yeah. And um, how, and I was a part of this uh, generation where we knew that the internet was going to change all of the things. Every one of the things. Yes. Right? And we raised millions of dollars to put a dot-com on the back of a, of a URL and to go after, you know, every single vertical on the planet with um, internet, e-commerce, et cetera. And uh, there are a lot of people who I guess would be my age now who thought it was too soon, too fast, not going to happen. All the words that people describe blockchain, mm -hmm. the same words that were describing internet and dot-com 20 some odd years ago. So it feels similar. Okay. I think the, so my reaction is, do I believe blockchain is going to be viable, important to a variety of industries? Absolutely. Do I know how it's going to roll out? No. I think that the question is the timeline of, of execution. And so for me, it's really about not if, but when and how. And then we take the second loop of, as I started this conversation, what is the role of Lucid mm -hmm. in our marketplace in supporting blockchain technologies and companies so that the value of our ecosystem can be increased? 
So I, I look forward to the blockchain thesis and the blockchain companies starting to create a lot of value for the industry. Right. And I look forward to integrating the, that value into the Lucid story. Okay. I am not sure when that starts becoming really relevant. Yeah, and I think the difference with blockchain is, is similar to what you just said, is that it's not just our industry. It's pervasive across multiple industries, and multiple industries have already adopted and are executing. So it's, it, it feels like it's, it is just a matter of time, not from a doom and gloom perspective, no. but from a perspective of how do we adopt this and make our ecosystem still maintain and, and thrive. I fully expect it to maintain and thrive. I mean, I remember some people saying, oh, that blockchain is going to replace what sample companies or panel companies. Yes. Well, like the internet didn't replace sample right. or, or, on, or data collection. Yeah. Right? It changed the, the process. It changed the mode, but it didn't change the need for either one of those things. The questions are still there. The questions are still there. <laughs> They're not going. And actually it's my belief. And of course, because I'm, you know, trying to grow a, a rapidly evolving industry and, and company is that the more questions you answer, the more questions are created. I've never known anyone to look at a data set and say, ah, I know everything now. I'm, I'm completely I'm done. I'm done. That's I've, I've reached Nirvana. I know everything I now. <laughs> no, it's like every time you dig in, people want to dig in further. So I don't That's think a really good point. A, I don't think there's a limit to human curiosity, right? And yep. so when people say, well, what's the growth curve potential for questions and answers and surveys and research? It's the growth curve of human curiosity. At the end yep. of Let's talk about entrepreneurship. Ooh, I'm a fan what's of that. It, what's it take to be an entrepreneur from your perspective? <laughs> I don't know. To be crazy? Maybe. I think the most important thing in entrepreneurship is choosing to do it. Mm -hmm. And I've met a lot of people who think they want to go down that path and because it can be it can be romanticized it can be um it can be fun it's a, as you well know it's a it can, it's mainly a grind mm -hmm. um but the difference between entrepreneurs and not entrepreneurs is choice are you going to choose and commit yourself to do it and i and think it's choose and commit every day yeah <laughs> And those people that are going to make that choice, whether that's called grit or naivete or uh, whatever the words you want yeah. to use, I see it as, as choice and, and direction. For myself, as a serial entrepreneur, it's are you willing to bang yourself, your head against the wall again after, yeah. you've, <laughs> after you've done one or two and a number of them have failed like they have in my case? It's, you know, are you willing to, to put yourself out there in that role again? What have you learned from your failures? I've learned uh, like a lot from my failures. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is that a lot of times your, your company fails because of macro events. Mm -hmm. um, that have nothing to do with how good of a, an entrepreneur or a leader you are or how right. good your, your idea is or, or revenue. Really, uh, I mean, I lived through dot-com boom and bust. Right. Two years later or less was 9-11. Mm. The next company I was with was, you know, the rug was pulled out from under us due to that. And I lived through, you know, 2008, 2010, where luckily OTX was strong enough to not only grow, but thrive through that change. A lot of companies weren't. And so one thing I've learned through entrepreneurship is that sometimes it's not going to work for factors that have nothing to do with you. And you have to be ready and to know what to do when those things actually occur. Yeah. And uh, most companies, 
I think it's a risk right now. We've been on a incredible tear here in the United States in terms of growth since say 2010 till now, eight years of awesome. Right. And most companies aren't really structured for what happens when it stops growing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I worry about entrepreneurs who aren't ready, haven't seen it, how they handle limited growth or right. negative growth over a number of quarters because of macro events, not because, you know, people don't like blockchain anymore. <laughs> and what's your perspective of our industry as it relates to new entrepreneurs coming in? Are you seeing more? Are you seeing less? It's gotten so much better than it used to be. I mean, on attitude and then support. So I'll start with attitude. When I landed in what I learned was called Sample in 2003, we were going through this transition from phone to web, right? Okay. And, you know, most traditional, you know, mature, credible entities were not ready to go down the online path. And so they were not supporting change or not supporting technology more than, or were they investing in new technologies? They were blocking and, it. And they were blocking it. And that's mm-hmm. been a, a path that our industry has taken time and time again, where the next credible thing, let's take blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Blockchain, people get excited about it. And then a lot of large entities say, no, 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 this is never going to happen. We're not right. going to support it. But I do believe it's gotten better where there's a lot more technology support from larger established institutions. But then I look at the support for the actual entrepreneurs in Nucos, and I got to give credit to like uh, uh, Lenny Murphy at IIEX, mm-hmm. really working with new companies and new ideas and running an accelerator and providing not only introductions to um, say clients, but also starting going down the path of introduction to capital. Right. So I think like literally over the past five years, the path for a, an entrepreneur in the insight space to gain traction quickly and move forward has dramatically shifted. And we've seen a lot of really exciting new companies move fast because of, of that, that, uh, that runway. The support. Um, that's, that's good. That's a, it's a very important sea change because the success of the growth of the insights business is all, often going to be tied to the technologies that are going to drive excitement from, from brands and other clients. I agree with that. Technology driven, not research consulting driven. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's a real opportunity to bring the technology and marry it with the research expertise. Absolutely. It's just getting some light shed on, on those new entrepreneurs. I think it's happening. I, I, I have to say that the, the number of angel investors that are out there for insights, not just seed, but also now Series A investors that are ready and willing is growing. The number of accelerators that are bespoke to insights is growing. I, I think it's a I think it's an exciting time for new technology companies to get going. Yep. I totally agree. Patrick, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Love to have you back soon. When do I get to ask you the hard question? When you start your podcast. (laughs) Actually, actually, you you can ask me, uh, you could co-host a show with me in the future. How's that? Okay. We should co-host a a sample con show in the future, right? Yeah. I'd love that. That's a great idea. Let's do that. Have an excellent day, my friend. You too. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold.
Be brave and be fearless.